Well, you can open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that's the text that will be in this, this morning. And you can direct your attention to verses 12 through 22. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 22, and we'll finish out this section this morning. And as you're turning to the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning, I want to give you a bit of an update on some things, and I want to share with you a bit of a roadmap of the path that we'll be taking here in the in the near future, in the next few months for our church. So just kind of a, an update for you. Uh, as for an update, uh, I shared with you through email uh, and through a, a portion in one Sunday's message how I'd like us to walk uh, really together on the journey towards my doctorate. And, uh, and part of that would involve me updating you uh, during the semester and, uh, and then at the end of the semester, sharing with you a, a little bit of what I've learned and how it's impacted my life. And, um, and so just briefly, I, I want to let you know that at the end of October, I will have finished all of the reading portion of my assignments. And uh, it's a lot of reading, uh, plus a, a few additional short assignments. And so then... Um, and starting really in November, November 1st to December 5th, I'll have to submit roughly about 30 writing assignments, 30 papers during the month of November. Um, so, please, so please do pray for me, pray for energy, pray for strength, pray for focus, uh, pray for wisdom uh, to finish out my, re- my reading assignments for the next week or week and a half and then also to, uh, to, to spend the month of November uh, really focused and effective uh, for my writing assignments. And, um, and this is really a, a tactic um, that um, it's a little bit like, let's hope this thing works, right? To read the whole semester and then uh, pretty much write for just a month straight. I'm not sure I'm going to be done at the end. I'm kind of just hoping that it works out. Um, And so really do need your prayers for that, but just wanted to update you so you could be praying. Um, And uh, please do remember that uh, I'm pursuing this uh, to better serve our church, which I know is also why Pastor Chad and Pastor Mike, uh, Pastor Chad pursuing his doctorate, and then Pastor Mike uh, pursuing his divinity degree. And then uh, soon to be Pastor Bo is also... Uh, working hard in school as well, just to serve you more faithfully for years and years and years to come. So in December, I'll be one semester down and uh, five semesters to go. And uh, don't, don't repeat that because it feels daunting every time I, I say it. But the reason why I also tell you that is because it involves our future plans a little bit as a church. Here's our path so you can be praying and anticipating. We have two sermons left in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Um, this week, this morning, and, and then next week, we'll finish the book. Uh, we could really divide next week's passage into two sermons, um, but to kind of stay on a bit of a schedule, we're gonna uh, cover the broad uh, benediction uh, together in one message. And I've grown really deeply to love this book. I know that you guys have as well. And the past six months that we've really spent in this, in this short book, I know for me it's going to have lasting effects. And there's many individuals who have told me that it's going to have lasting effects on their lives. And I know it'll have lasting effects together for us as a church. But I'm excited about what lies ahead. And so just briefly, during the month of November... Um, we're we're going to be edified by uh, a, a group of standalone messages by some of our other uh, pastors and, and teachers, uh, messages from uh, Pastor Mike and Pastor Chad, and then uh, Elder in Training, Mr. Bo Whittemore, and uh, doctrinal, topical, very practical messages that uh, are timely um, and that God is working in their lives, and I know that they're going to benefit us during the month of November. And then starting the first Sunday in December, we're going to embark through the Old Testament book of Ruth. Um, That's going to start December 1st, and uh, we'll be in there for four weeks um, through the month of December, excluding Christmas Eve service, which will be a a special Christmas uh, message. And 
And so that'll be our month of December. It, it may seem unusual for some that we're going to cover Ruth during the Christmas season, but, but again, I have to preach that book for school, and so you're, you're going to receive the benefit of it. I've put it off to the very end of the semester uh, because I didn't want to pause First Thessalonians. But really, of course, as I was thinking about it, we know that this is not unusual. Uh, really, the entire Bible is the Christian's content, right? So it doesn't matter. Uh, it's beneficial for every season. Holidays are traditions, and they're good ones, uh, but they're simply useful for helping us to remember certain things. And of course, this holiday, the incarnation, the person of Christ, the gospel as a whole. So we, we try to always remember that, the incarnation, all year round. So we'll follow the holiday schedule the best that we can, but the holidays are made for man, not man for the holiday. Um, and so at the same time, I, I will tell you, we all know, I joke, but Ruth's theme, the theme of Ruth will really lead us directly into uh, the incarnation. Really, the pinnacle of the book of Ruth is at the very end, which is God's faithfulness to the line of the coming Messiah. And so it really does fit thematically perfectly, and it's actually perfectly fitting. Um, but it shows God's great providence in the life of our church uh, to bring us to that point during the month of December. Um, I do want to mention also that the Christmas Eve service lands on a Sunday this year. Um, that's always a blessing. And then um, I will tell you that after Ruth, Pastor Josh will be preaching a special two-week series during the month of January, uh, the first two Sundays in January. Um, and you're going to want to make sure that you're here for those first couple weeks in, the, in, in January. And I'll go to California then for my second uh, of four on-campus modules. Um, when I return, I, I think I'd like to finish out the book of Jonah, um, which we, we covered a few verses about a month ago. And then come February, we'll be off to the races with another major book uh, of the Bible. So I wanted to let you know all that so you can just be praying, anticipating, hoping. I will tell you, uh, I, I want to share with you one additional note. For a, a couple of years now, Pastor Chad and I and, and now the rest of our elders have been connected with a pastor from Arizona who is planting a like-minded church in New Orleans East. And uh, he grew up there. He left for some time. He graduated from a seminary we know and trust, the Expositor Seminary. He earned a degree in biblical counseling from the Master's Seminary. He's an ACBC guy. And uh, he's one of the main speakers, actually, at one of our ACBC, uh, the ACBC conference that we're going to be hosting here in April. And you're going to find out a lot more about that in the coming, coming weeks. But he pastored in Arizona for some time then, and he's arriving next, next week with all of the families to plant the church in New Orleans East. And um, we're going to be serving them in various capacities here coming up soon. We're excited about that. But just for now, I'd like to, to let you know that they're going to be joining us to fellowship with us, all those families who have come to plant that church um, from the point of their arrival, um, which is going to be around mid to, to end of November, um, until uh, they begin meeting permanently in January. And so from mid-November till about the beginning of January, a total of about seven Sundays, uh, that uh, group of families are going to be with us. And, uh, and so just know that, um, be anticipating that, and, and I really would love to show them great hospitality. Uh, Chad and I can relate to what it's like uh, to move to a new place, not know anybody, and have the daunting task of uh, wondering if God's uh, you know, going to come through in the ways that we'd like him to. Uh, in regards to planting a church. So when they come here during those seven weeks, love them, uh, serve them, just like you'd like to be served yourself if you were moving your family um, from the far west uh, to deep inner city of New Orleans and uh, embarking on a courageous mission. Um, but engage them, pray with them, uh, host them at your home, uh, attend to them, encourage them, go see their home and, and express interest in their lives and in many other ways, bless them. Um, but there will be more details to come on that, but I want you to know that that's coming. So now that we've gotten all that out, let's get to the great and glorious word of God. And let's read our passage for today. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 22. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, 
Encourage the faint-hearted. <clears throat> Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, as we've noted in the past five messages through this section, this being our sixth message in this section, we know how to slow down, don't we? What we're seeing in this particular passage is a list of exhortations and commands. It's a list of exhortations and commands for the church. It's pretty straightforward and pretty simple. Paul and his fellow ministers are closing out this letter with a, a litany of instruction. They're ensuring, they want to ensure that this Thessalonian church continues on in their sanctification. So they're just listing a, a, a command after command, exhortation after exhortation as they close out this letter to this church. So the mini-series really through this section we've entitled Ecclesiastical Exhortations because that's exactly what it is. It's exhortations or instructions or commands for the church, for the believers individually, but for the believers together as a whole. And so in the last division of this section, which we're covering today, Paul is focusing on the believers' relationships with God the believer's relationship with God. And so that's the final aspect of these exhortations in this list. They deal with the believer's relationship to God. And the church, as he closes this letter, listen now, the church must obey these instructions. Uh, these are final inspired words of Paul. They're divinely inspired. They come from God, so they're authoritative. The word of God has reign over our lives because of who it comes from. It comes from God himself. And so if the church is to become everything that God wants it to be, if the believers are to become everything that God wants them to be, They'll have to listen to what Paul is writing here. Paul here is like a commander of the troops. At the end here, he, he's commanding the troop. These are divinely inspired briefing to the church, to the troops, on how to accomplish the mission. These words here are, are like words coming from a coach giving his team the play-by-play the -play for the biggest game of their lives. They're, they're like words from a parent to a child, from a parent to his children, where the parent gets down and looks at them in the eye and, and grabs their chin to, to look closely at what the parent is saying. And with love and affection in his heart, Paul here is now looking at these Thessalonian believers and he's urging them. He's asking them, he's pleading with them, he's commanding them to, to do what he's telling them to do. In fact, Paul even uses this illustration of a parent with children in chapter two, verse seven. He calls himself as one like a nursing mother to these people. He says in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, he says he's like a father to the children. And because of this fatherly position, he exhorts them and encourages them and charges them to walk in a manner worthy of God. It's, he's like a commander. He's like a coach. He's like a, a parent. And he says in chapter 2, verse 8, that he was so affectionately desirous. Listen now, this is his motivation. He is so affectionately desirous for this people that he's ready to share not only the gospel with them, but his whole life. 
because they've become so very dear to him. These exhortations are motivated by a love and a desire for these people to be everything that God wants them to be. Paul cares about these new converts. Uh, he, he's not only led them to Christ, they're believers because of his missional effort, but he's also giving his life to make sure they grow, to make sure they grow. In chapter, uh, uh, the same chapter, chapter two and verses 17 through 20, he says that he was torn away from them from some time. We read about that because of the persecution and, but he was torn away from them in person, not in heart. His heart was still with, with them, and he endeavored more eagerly, it says, with great desire to see them face to face because he wanted to come to them again and again, but Satan hindered him. And he said this, this is why I want to come. You're my hope and my joy and my crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus. When he comes, you're my glory and my hope. You're the evidence that my life has mattered for Christ. And so he wants to teach this true and diligent church the ways in which they will grow, the ways in which they will be healthy, the ways in which they will mature, they will stay strong, they will continue to be effective and stable. And you know that throughout this letter, Paul has confirmed their salvation, right? He's encouraged them in the areas that he's seen in their lives. He's really even instructed them in particular areas that they needed instruction in, like, like the rapture and the day of the Lord. But he wants them, listen, listen now, to continue putting into practice what he taught them when he was with them. He says, you got to keep putting these things into practice. In chapter four, verse one, he says, finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord that as you received from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. He's saying what you heard from me when I was with you, keep doing it more, keep growing he wants them to be everything that God wants them to be. In chapter 4, verse 9, regarding their love for one another, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, we have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you're doing. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Listen, this is what he wants from them. He wants them to grow. And so now at the end of this letter, he's giving them particular encouragements to grow in their relationship with God. God will do the work in them, but they, listen, must put forth the effort to grow. God will do the work in them, but they must put forth the effort to grow. They must put forth the effort to obey God to obey his teaching, to, to do what Paul has commanded. They, they must apply these things in their lives. And so in this section, what must they do? Well, we saw that they must relate to the elders in a certain way in the church. We saw that in verses 12 through 13. That's going to benefit them and benefit the church. Uh, they must also relate to one another in a certain way. We saw that in verses 14 through 15. That's going to benefit the church and benefit them as individuals. And now they must relate to God in a certain way. And we see this in, the, in these last verses in verses 16 through 22. And if they have the right relationship with God, listen, it's going to keep them on the right trajectory towards growth in Christ. It will mean that they are pleasing God with their lives if they have a right relationship with him personally. And this quality, listen now, before we get into this, th this quality is the most important aspect of our lives. Our relationship with God is the most important aspect of our lives. It's the most important aspect of your life. Your relationship with God must be the most important aspect of your life. As a believer in Christ, your relationship with God should be your supreme concern. Listen to me. 
I know you've heard it. I know you, if you've grown up you, in the church, you, you, you've heard the emphasis, but you got to hear this with real ears that want to take it in and, and live accordingly. Your relationship with God should be the supreme concern of your life. Is it? Your heart towards God, your fellowship with God, your submission to God, your obedience to God, your faithfulness to God. Without a vibrant, healthy, active relationship with God, without a treasuring him in your heart, without a hearing from him in his word, without a talking to him in prayer, without a right thinking of him in your mind, without a right response to him in your life, without actively obeying him in every moment of your lives, here's what your life is going to be like. It's going to be like a ship that's just really kind of veering slowly. It's not actively looking at the compass. And so it's just a little, it's just a little bit off center. It's just a click to the right or to the left. And slowly, not all at once, usually, as time goes on, you drift further and further away from center. And a number of things happen. You either find yourself in a storm, and at that point, you're helpless to escape. Or you find yourself months and years down the road and you're so lost that you might never make it back. And that's scary. That is a possibility in the scriptures. You can't believe you're so far off path. It didn't seem like you had been traveling so far away from God this whole time as you were looking at the scenery around you but now, almost all at once, you find yourself so far from God that you wouldn't even know how to get back if you tried. And this is the scary way this works. It's just a slow drift. You might find yourself many years or months down the road and you're so lost, or even worse, you crash head, headlong into the consequences of your sins. You don't even see, because of the blindness in your life, the consequences that are right around the corner because of you deviating from your relationship with God. But listen now, these are the ones, these are the important things for us. And, and, and it's vitally important that you maintain this relationship with God, that it's the strongest aspect of your life and let me tell you, if you invest in your relationship with God, if you cultivate it, though sometimes it's hard work, though sometimes it requires spiritual sweat because you're really denying your flesh, then you're going to experience what Joshua 1 says, where he says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you might be careful to do all that is written in it, for then you will make your way what? prosperous and you will have good success. So listen, the, the message really confronts us here. Listen, are you fixed straight ahead on your relationship with God? Are you giving the time, the energy, the focus, the attention that it requires to ensure that you're not living a life that's drifting? Are, are you begging God to do his work in you? If you are in Christ, God desires to do a great work in you, but you must have a healthy relationship with God. And so what does Paul include here to encourage these people in their relationship with God? Well, in verses 18, he makes clear, and these are up on the screen. These will be up on the screen here in a minute. He makes clear that this is the will of God. Listen, this is the roadmap to where we're going. In verse 18, he makes clear that these are the features that please God. This is God's will for the believer. This is God's will. And, and we already saw in verse 16 that it's constant joy. It's continual prayer in verse 17. It's consistent thanksgiving in verse 18. And we covered these features last week. And listen now, because the rest are obviously also God's will, because they are in his inspired word of, 
and letter here. I'm going to keep them part of the list, but here's what we're going to see here. There's three more features that I want to point out. Spirit rule, scripture submission, and situation examination. And we're going to see these in verses 19, 20, and 21 through 22. And so listen now, let me ask you once again, is your relationship with God healthy? Is your personal relationship with God healthy? This must be the most important aspect of your life. And I pray that you take it as seriously as it, it needs to be taken. This is Paul's concern with, with this church. So let's just get into these. I wanna briefly review the features that we looked at before we get into the, the final three. He starts out by saying that this is God's will by, for believers. Look at 18. We're gonna start at the end of the first three encouragements. Look at verse 18. We start with the end here because this is the reason. He says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We're starting at the end of the first three commands, right? This is God's will for the believers. We're starting at the end of the first three commands because Paul gives the reason, listen, why they should obey his commands. He gives the reason for why they should obey his commands. Paul gives them the reasons they should obey. And then from verses 16 through 17, he had given them those, those commands. He said that they should obey these commands because it is God's will. God's will for who? God's will for you, he says. This is God's will for the believer. This is second person plural. So Paul's looking at the church and saying, this is God's will for you all. That's why you should obey these commands. This is God's will for you, all right? But this is God's will for the church corporately. But these things start individually. Why individually? Because all of these aspects here start in the heart of, of the believer, Right? There's a reason we're focused on the individual relationship with God here because all of these actions begin with the individual believer. Each believer in the church must commit to these responsibilities if the church is to be everything God wants it to be publicly and corporately. And so in other words, if these features are genuinely true of individuals in the church, they're gonna be true of the believers together. And so all these features deal with the believer's attitude towards God, how they think about God, respond to God, relate to God, express their love and trust in God. And so Paul knows, listen now, Paul knows that the believer should care about the will of God. The believer should care that he's doing the will of God. Isn't that right? And so Paul here gives these first three commands. And then he says, do these because these are the will of, of God in the believer's life. And he is sure that these commands should be lived out. But he's sure also that when he says, this is the will of God, that the believers in the church would care about it. Oh, we got to do this because this is God's will. And so this is the ground, the reasoning in which he gives for obeying these things. And listen, that's characteristic of a true believer. A true believer cares about doing God's will in their lives. A true believer cares about doing God's will in their lives. John 14, 23 says, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. The true believer cares about doing the will of God. Matthew 12, 50 says, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. So we should ask our, ourselves at this point, because Paul is motivating them in these aspects by the fact that this is God's will for them and it pleases God. And so we should ask ourselves before we get into all these particular features, is the chief concern of your life to do God's will? Do you care about doing God's will in your life? I mean, really, do you care about doing God's will? 
Is that the main focus of your life? I want to do God's will. We can often say that, but functionally, our lives don't show that, nor do we adhere to the word like we should. And so we might say that with our lips, but our hearts are far from that reality. And so if you care about doing God's will, then you're going to focus on what Paul instructs the church to be here. So what does he say these features are in terms of their relating to God? Well, first of all, there's this aspect of constant joy. Constant joy. You wanna do God's will in your life and be the believer and the church that God wants you to be. First, here, he says, you must be a person of constant joy. That's a pretty awesome command, huh? Be happy in the Lord. And so here's what he says. Look at verse 16. He says, rejoice what? Always. That's a pretty easy verse to understand. We spent most of our time in this last week, so I'm not going to spend much more time on it. But listen, I'm going to mention this, just like the rest of the items on this list. This is an imperative form, meaning this is a command. He is commanding the believers in Christ to rejoice always. That's the first aspect that he commands here. And I'm going to mention this because it's important that the only way he is able to command this is because this is possible for the believer. You, you might not think that this is possible for you, but he is commanding this because it is possible. It is, in fact, what the Spirit is producing in all believers. Joy is not an emotion, obviously, we learn here, because it's commanded. We, we don't receive joy passively. Uh, it's, it's a choice, and it comes by the way of a renewed mind, right? And this is where it starts to move into the health of our relationship with God. Joy comes from a renewed mind. You have to understand, in the scriptures, everything starts in the mind. Everything. You're enlightened by the truth, and you change your life. It moves to your affections, your beliefs, your, your actions. It, it permeates everything. But you got to have the knowledge and the instruction first. Everything starts in the mind. And so this is obviously not a, an emotion to receive passively, he is ensuring that these believers' relationship with God is healthy. They're to have constant joy. This comes by the renewal of the mind. It comes from renewing your mind in the truth of God, meditating on and trusting by faith in those truths. And so the command here is to be constantly, literally in the Greek, constantly or continually rejoicing. It's, in, it's pretty interesting because it's be continuing to rejoice constantly. Present tense means a continual action, but then he adds the word also constantly or, or always. So it's literally always be rejoicing always. Right? Continually be rejoicing at all times. And so we, we talked about some of the reasons last week that the believer should be rejoicing. But let me say this, the rejoicing here is in the context of your relationship with God. It is fed by the fellowship you have with God. It's not fed by your situation. And so with you, you know God, you know what he's done in your life. You know the future plans that he has for you as a believer. And so really here, this is important because Listen, this is a litmus test for the health of your relationship with God. Now, I'm not talking about your temporary happiness that you find from, you know, external situations. I'm talking about in your relationship with God, because of the truth of God and who he is to you, your joy is full and is constant. This is a litmus test for the health of your relationship with God. Psalm 1 that we just sang is this joyful peace comes from knowing God, doing his will, right? And so let me ask you this real quick. What does your joy or lack thereof say about your, the health of your relationship with God? What does your joy or lack thereof say about your relationship with God? And again, in the context, your joy fed by the truth of God, the relationship you have with the Lord. 
Is your primary source of joy derived from your relationship with God? Paul's commanding this because this is the way to keep the believer healthy in the Lord. If you have right fellowship with God, this should be true of your life. And if it's not true of your life, it's evidence that something's off in your relationship with God. So he says, constant joy. The second feature here we see is continual prayer. And we talked about this again last week, but it says in verse 17, pray without what? Ceasing. The command here is continually be praying, present tense again, at all times, right? Constantly be praying, continue to be praying unceasingly. And so again, I described this in more detail last week, but the aspects of prayer are all included here. We talked about a bit of what prayer is, but again here, Paul isn't naive. Listen now, Paul isn't naive to think that you don't have responsibilities in your daily lives. What do you mean pray unceasingly? I gotta go do things, right? But listen, the believer should be talking to God all day. And there's no caveat to that. The believer should be talking to God all day long. The believer should be talking to God in and out of every situation. You should have a devoted prayer time each day, even occasionally fasting to remove any sense of autonomy or self-reliance in your life. But you should be talking to God all day from morning until evening in a regular fashion. I was gonna bring the book that we're reading in our men's group, I forgot it, but um, I'll just illustrate it by, by my life. There was a morning last week when I woke up early and, and I was spending time in prayer and, and praying for so many things that we need as a church and that my family needs, et cetera. And, uh, and before I was finished, my son comes in and he wants to hang out. And, and so I'm you know, at that point left with the dilemma you know, do I keep praying here and, and tell him to leave or do I, do I um, you know, get up and, and get going with them? And, uh, and so we move into the kitchen and we're interacting. There's voices everywhere, you know, at all times uh, in the kitchen and, and people are asking for things, et cetera. But I hadn't yet finished praying for all the things that I need to pray for. And so in the midst of that, I just kept praying. I just kept praying in my mind. I was continuing to pray even in the midst of, of what was going on in life. And this is the idea of continually praying. No matter what you're doing, at all times, you're continuing to talk to God throughout your day, asking for your needs, asking uh, for wisdom, asking uh, for him to do uh, these things, expressing your thankfulness uh, for him, praising him in your heart, confessing uh, your sin to him. The believer, it is normal for the believer to be talking to God all day long. Is that the reality of your life? He's not saying pray unceasingly, but I don't really mean unceasingly. He's saying pray, be praying at all times unceasingly. That's the reality of the life. There is at all times in the believer's mind a continual interaction with God. And you should also then have this regular time of, of even just focused prayer. In our book that we've been reading, we focused on prayer this past week and, and it encouraged the believers to even make a list for that individual time and that's a great suggestion. You know, over the years as I've had a prayer list, even when I'm busy and I don't have a ton of time in the morning or wherever, whenever it might be, it allows me the opportunity to just read straight through that list. God knows my heart and, and God understands my needs, but it allows me not to even skip praying for those particular things, even in the busyness of life. Uh, do you pray for the church? Uh, we talked about this last uh, week again in our group, but you should be praying for the believers in the church constantly. You know, you can get a members list for our church from, from Bo. 
And you can pray through that once a week because Ephesians 6 tells us so. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the what? Saints. I mean, there's a lot of practical examples, prayer lists, continually talking to God in your mind throughout the whole day. Uh, get a members list for our church and be praying for that often. You, could, you, you should be organizing groups of people in this church to be praying with. As I said last week, and, and I don't say this to condemn you, but to call you to something greater, our prayer gatherings have been the least attended thing in the life of our church. When people... Throughout the week, we want you to be gathering here to pray. We want you to be praying for the services during the services. Maybe there's a group that says, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna pray during the service and we're gonna have a rotation. Or we'll pray together before the service so that God will work. Or we're gonna get together and, and pray throughout the week. Um, this is important. But listen, let me ask you this question because I'm just kind of reviewing these and, and, and diving deeper into the application of the ones that we've covered. If the... If you were to average the amount of time that you spend talking to God per week, what would it say about how healthy your relationship to him is? If you were to average the amount of time you spend talking to God per week, what would that say about the health of your relationship with him? What does your joy say or lack thereof? What is your dialogue with God and the frequency of it and the passion of it express about your relationship? Because we could say our relationship with God is great and healthy and we have one all day long. But Paul here is really, you know, putting feet to this thing. And this is what God wants for the believer. And so there's a third aspect here, constant thanksgiving or consistent thanksgiving. Verse 18a, it says this, says, give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. This again is the imperative. It's a command here. So, so you must be thankful always. Always be happy, always be praying, always be thankful. And really here what it's meaning is that we're, we're feeling, we're, we're being, we're expressing thankfulness to God at all times while constantly focusing on specific things that we're thankful for. This is thankfulness in every circumstance. And this is not the only time that Paul has spoken about this. He, Paul tells the church in Philippi, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with what? Thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. He tells the church in Colossae, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. He tells the church in Ephesus, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking, which is out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. I mean, he is... Uh, continually telling the church to, 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 to express their thankfulness to God. And, and this is important to God. Listen now, you might say, well, this seems so practical. I didn't know that this was really important. This, God takes this very seriously. And again, this is a litmus test for the health of one's relationship with God. That's why we entitled this little section how the believers relate to God because all of these exemplify one's relationship with God. But it's important to God, this thankfulness. Why? Well, two, two categories, because of what it means and because of what it manifests. Just listen now. What it means. If you're thankful to God, what this means is that you're content. It means that you're satisfied with who God is. It means that you're satisfied with what God chooses to do. It means your heart is, is healthy and rightly puts God in his proper place. It means that you recognize that he is sovereign. It, it means that you recognize that he does, he gives, and he works in the ways in which he chooses to. When you're ungrateful, when you're discontent, when you're dissatisfied, when you're grumbling, it means that you want to be sovereign. It means that you know what's best. 
It means that you want what he has not given. It means that what he does as the sovereign Lord of creation is not good enough. That's what you're expressing. In fact, you're saying this to God, you must do better. James says every gift comes from above. So if you lack thankfulness, it's really directed towards God, regardless of whether you think so or not. It usually means that you're not focused on the right things. It means you're focused on things that will never satisfy. It means that you're not focused on what God has done through Christ. It means you're not focused on what God has prescribed in his word. And really to be unthankful in that sense would be blasphemous. If you're a Christian and you're not thankful for what God has done for you in salvation through Christ, that doesn't permeate every area of your life. And really that borders blasphemy. We're blind to how our desires are tainted with sin. And so we're usually focused on not getting what we want. And a lot of this is tied to your worth. You want things and you make idol of things because you are trying to attain some worth for yourself. And it just breeds idolatry. And so you're ungrateful. You wanna be the sovereign one. But listen, this is also important because of what it manifests right, because of what it manifests. And, and let me tell you again, this, this is something that God takes very seriously. In 1 Corinthians, Paul describes how God killed and disciplined his people in the Old Testament. You wanna know why? Because they were grumbling. And we take sin like sexual sin so seriously. We would never do that so casually and flamboyantly, but we're okay to, to, to grumble. And this is just as serious to God. And so it's also important because of what this unthankful heart will manifest. A thankful heart, here's what, here's what happens in the life of the person who is thankful to God. He submits to God. He has meaningful fellowship with God. He doesn't stray from God. He experiences the blessings of God. But here is an, uh, a, a fact that is true all the time. An ungrateful heart will always head towards idolatry. Always, 100% of the time, because it's dissatisfied from what I get or who God is or what he's done. And so I will decide to get what I want on my own, apart from God, effectively putting aspects of life above God. And so this is what was true for Israel. Remember when they lost sight of what God had done in the Exodus? They're out in the desert and God had just freed them from slavery, right? And they didn't, end, they didn't like God's rules and regulations. They didn't like how God had been leading them or, or providing for them. So they grumbled and they respond sinfully. And what do they do? They go off on their own and they commit idolatry. And so if you are unthankful, this will end up leading to a wide variety of sins in your life. The inherent response to not being grateful is idolatry. It's idolatry. It, it's all, always the result of an unthankful heart. And so this really is tied to your relationship with God. Paul says in Romans 1 that the foundational characteristic of an unbeliever is not being thankful is not being content with who God is, right? You can read that at another time. I, I wanna keep moving here, but Romans chapter one, they did not honor God. They were not thankful to God for who he is and what he's done, and so they went their own way. So let me ask you this question. Does your pattern of expressing thankfulness to God or your lack of thanksgiving, what does it say about your relationship with God? What does it say about the health of your relationship with God? So, there's three more features that I want to touch on briefly here. The fourth here is spirit rule. This is, how, this is what Paul describes as one who, who, is, who is healthy in their relationship with God. First, rejoicing always. Second, constant in, in prayer. Third, they have thanksgiving all the time in their hearts. Number four, there's the rule of the spirit in their life. He says this in verse 18. I'm sorry, verse 19. Do not quench the what? The spirit, do not quench the spirit. The, the, the spirit must have rule in the believer's life. Uh, we talked about this when I did the sermon some time ago, uh, the standalone sermon, but literally what Paul is commanding here is, 
is, is in the negative. Do not quench or stifle or suppress the spirit. The word is really used, listen, to put out a fire. Don't put out the fire of the spirit in your life. That's what he's saying here. And it's appropriate because Matthew 25, Mark 9, for example, described the spirit as a fire. And that's appropriate picture because the spirit, um, or I'm sorry, that's the way that it's used to put out in Matthew 25 and Mark 9. But the spirit is described in Acts 2 or Matthew 3 as a fire, which is appropriate because the spirit is a, gives light to the believer. The spirit gives energy to the believer, gives passion and heat to, to the believer's life. And so the image is appropriate, but listen, what this deals with here is extinguishing the Spirit's work in the life of the believer. That's exactly what he's saying here. Don't extinguish the Spirit's work in your life. The true believer has the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 says you get, it at, you get him at the, at the point of your conversion. But listen, the Holy Spirit will do a few things. He, he helps you understand the word. He helps you commune with God. He sanctifies you, makes you more like Christ. He convicts you of sin. He helps you to know and do God's will. He helps you to witness for Christ. Ephesians 5 says that we are to be controlled by the Spirit. Galatians 5 interprets that for us and says we're to walk by the Spirit. What does that mean? It means to put forth effort, one foot in front of the other, in what God says for instance, in reading his word, spending time in prayer, obeying his word, turning from sin, sharing the gospel, fighting to grow. And as you put forth that effort, the spirit of God inside you does the supernatural work that only he can do. And that's the simplest way to put it. And so the spirit has worked in the believer. The believer is to be controlled by the spirit, doing what God says as the, as the spirit works and you are not to quench the spirit or to resist the spirit's work, either by omission or commission, meaning by what you do or by what you don't do. And so what would quench the spirit? Well, Galatians 5 makes it clear. It's gratifying the flesh. That's what would quench the spirit because in Galatians 5, it talks about grieving the spirit, same thing. How do you quench the spirit's work in your life? Living by the flesh. In other words, the spirit is ready to do this great sanctifying work in your life and you are constantly either not doing the things in which God tells you to do so that the spirit can use that to help you grow or you are consistently doing the things that you know you are not to do and therefore grieving the spirit. This hinders in a sense the spirit's work in your life. It involves committing sins, not obeying the word, not making time for prayer, for Bible reading, not putting forth the effort to share your faith, operating independently from God, doing what God forbids. Calvin says it this way, it's brushing aside the precious gift from God. It's closing your eyes and allowing yourself to be dragged into the world. It's apathy, it's laziness, it's a, it's a decision to sin. And so are you suppressing the Spirit's work in your life? Are you suppressing the Spirit's work in your life, either by not doing what he commands or by doing what you know he forbids? This is picturesque of what some of us do when we decide to live for ourselves. So let me just mention these last two, we're done. Fifth here, this, this feature is scripture submission. He says this, he says, do not despise prophecies. Do not despise prophecies. We have to address the issue here real quick is that this is not related to the previous command any more than the rest of the commands are related to this command. So some unnaturally connect the two verses and use it to support the charismatic gifts. That's not what's being addressed here. These are all individual commands. There's no evidence from this text whatsoever that those two belong together any more than any of the others belong together. And so I won't address the gifts here again, but we, we hosted a seminar about them and you can go back and listen to it. But this is, this is not a correction to the Thessalonians because of their underestimation or prevention of the charismatic gifts. This text 
is a separate statement, just as all of these are separate statement, but it's clear from this, what Paul is saying here is don't despise, which means don't reject, look down on, treat with contempt, get upset at, reject, have disdain for, uh, be contempt, uh, find contemptible, be disbelieving, be denying. Don't, don't look down on and show contempt to. It says prophetic utterances or, or prophecies, which means, listen, This means a declaration of God's will or mind, a representative declaration of God's will or mind. And so this includes the spoken word and it includes the word proclaimed publicly. In other words, don't despise God's word. Don't reject God's word in your life. That's the point here. The command is to not get upset with not the gift, with the content of God's message. With the content of God's message. We know 2 Peter, most of the time in the New Testament, this word here that's translated prophecy is often is used to describe the written word, actually, like in 2 Peter. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, which you will do well to pay attention to. This is the word of God. This is the declared will of God. You're not to despise it, right? However, this writing is during the apostolic era. And so there are still uh, men who are called by God to declare God's will. There's revelatory preaching still occurring here and people still writing the New Testament. And so at the same time, the call here is not to despise what they say as they clarify the Old Testament and as they declare what's new. And so the point here though is even for us at this point in our lives, there's only one application. Don't despise the word of God. Don't despise the word of God. And the application to us is what is your attitude towards the word? What's your attitude towards the word? This is what we should, this is what we should focus on. And let me just caution you with this. I know we're, this is dense and we're, we're getting near towards the end of this, but let me help you. This is really relevant because it speaks of our response to God's revelation. I was going to tell you more about the prophetic aspect, the Old Testament, how things have changed, et cetera, uh, who, what the requirements were for the prophet. We just don't have time. Um, but what's relevant for our lives is this speaks to our response to God's written revelation. And you might say this, oh man, I'm open to God's word. But let me just caution you, just a warning. From the 15 years of, of preaching God's word, Everyone's receptive until the literal, objective, clear, plain word deals with an area of their lives that they don't want to submit to. This is the point here. Everyone's receptive. Say, yeah, I want to hear the word until that word tells you to live in a way that you don't want to live. And then you get mad at it. And you get mad at the preacher. But usually what happens, and let me just tell you the trajectory just as a warning, I think this is important. What happens usually is the person then gets mad at it. They justify it by finding an alternate, allegorized, vague, errant interpretation. And they find people who interpret it that way. And then the bitterness grows. They become even more upset And they either brush it aside or they end up going their own way. I mean, I see it like clockwork. Here's what happens. Someone wants their sin or they're exhorted and they don't like it. They don't want that area of their life to be touched. They don't want to go all in. They don't want to grow. They don't want to be uncomfortable. They don't want to open their hands. And I can just see it. I mean, I'm the shepherd. I'm watching it take place in someone's life. All of a sudden, they isolate They let no one move into that area of their life. They find people to support their sin. They get embittered. They they come to worship and all of a sudden they are visibly closed off. And at that point, I know the result is inevitable. I mean, I just know it. I just wait for it. I've seen it too many times. Sure enough, the letter comes in. I'm leaving or I'm walking away from Christ or the church, citing some alternate reason for doing so. I mean, it's just clockwork. Just clockwork. And the point is, because 
what happens is the word of God eventually confronts that area of their lives that they don't wanna change and they either grow or they go. And you have to wanna grow. And James talks about this. James says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to become angry. The, the context of that verse is getting angry at the word of God. Listen to the word. Uh, uh, in the context, it's not referring to relationship. And then Timothy says this. He says, people will endure sound, te- sound teaching. That's people in the church for a certain time. But then eventually, because of its confronting nature, they're gonna find teachers to accommodate what they want. It's got a, it's got a limited time frame to their adhering to it. And so my encouragement to you is, you might say you're receptive But when it comes time for that word of God to confront you so that you must change, you have to still be just as receptive. Are you allowing God's word to have a complete authority in your life? So let me just tell you this last one. I know we're over time, but I'm just trying to get through this so we can finish the letter next week. And I've skipped so much content, but that's all right. The situation examination, verses 21 through 22, it says this. Test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every evil. There's a textual variant. Is is the but there? Is it really connected to the the previous statement? It could be because that would make sense. Don't despise the word of God. Examine it just like the Bereans. And if it's true, hold fast to it. And if it's not, you know, turn away. Um, But really... Uh, in, in the text, this really seems to stand on its own more than be connected to the first, uh, to what's before it. And, and so really, we can just say this, that the encouragement is just in general. It's this is what you are to do in your life. Whether you're hearing teaching, which is true, or false, or whether you're just living life and examining your opportunities and situations. You are to examine everything You are to test everything. You are to look to see if the scriptures point to this as something that is good or something that is evil. And then here's what I want to focus on quickly is your response. You are to be one who has spiritual discernment in your life. But your response is what really matters. You are to hold fast to what is good. This means that when you understand what God says, what he requires, what is, was good, what is good, you are to give your whole life to it. You are to literally take it in with all your heart. Take it in with all your heart. And when you see from your testing and your assessment by the word of God, what is not good, what God forbids, what is sin, what is not healthy and true and right literally means you are to completely separate from it. You are to abstain from every evil, completely separate your life from all sin. You are not to be dabbling in the world or in in sin. That's how the believer becomes healthy and holy. And you are to give everything you have And take in with all your heart what is good. So in conclusion, listen, this is what Paul wants the church to be. You see how this is really just applicable to the believer's individual life. So test yourself. What does your joy say about the health of your relationship with God? What about the consistency of your prayer life? What about your response of thanksgiving to God? And that's a good test to see if you're not a thankful, if you're not thankful, you've probably set up a lot of idols in various areas. Your life is probably infested with idols and you've not even noticed. What about the spirit's rule in your life? Are you quenching the spirit by either what you commit or what you omit? The spirit, spirit's not working to the degree that he needs to in your life. What about your submission to scripture? Are you angry at it? Do you look down on it? When it comes to address that area of your life, are you upset? 
And are you looking at everything in your life with spiritual discernment? And are you going all in on what God wants? And are you separating completely from what God doesn't? This is what God wants from his church. Let's pray. Father, I just pray by your grace that you would take this um, and change us in it. Allow it to have its effect. I know here is, we could elaborate on these aspects uh, for, for months. But Lord, I just, I ask that you'd make this church everything you want it to be. And that it would be built on the foundation of the relationship with you. And that all of these things would be true of their lives as evidence that their relationship with you is healthy and strong. In Jesus' name, amen.